What are some things that Jesus has said? Um, that he would die on the cross and rise three days later. Uh, be good, Wilco. He wants you to be happier so you can have a great day. That I love people and I will help them heal when they get sick. Trust in him. Uh, don't lie. Be yourself. Jesus loves me. What does being blessed mean? Being gifted with talents. You get to go to heaven. He brings you stuff. Means you get more love. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Bible class I learned about the Beatitudes and poor in spirit means to have a godly spirit. To not have that much faith in Jesus. Mm, you sin a lot. Um, not believing in yourself. That means having no money and we're not rich at all and we don't have a family. How does God comfort us? Pits love in our body. Uh, makes us feel good. <laughs> like, I mean, like, they feel better. Um, with our moms and dads. I sing with, he loves us. What are some ways that God talks to us? When we're praying. From our hearts. In French. So today we begin a months-long sermon series on, Jesus said what? Okay, not really. Well, it's what Jesus said, which is why it's so important that we take a look at it. But you probably know it a lot better as the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, a lot of the things that we're going to cover, you're going to have heard. You maybe didn't even know some of them came from the Bible. But we're, uh, we're going to take a look at what has been called many times in the last 2,000 years, the best sermon ever preached. And, it, and it's the best sermon ever preached because the preacher, really in this case the teacher, was Jesus. My intention with this one is to move slowly. I don't want to rush through all of these because there's just so much there. And I want us to be able to dig deep into these profound words of Jesus because they have so much meaning and there's so much that we really need to understand. I wish I could take one verse a week, but that really isn't practical. And you need to understand that we're going to end up not talking about 90% of the stuff that I really wish that we could. And so it's going to be important that you take time on your own to go through and read these and, and study these verses and kind of use them as a devotional yourself uh, from Sunday to Sunday. My prayer really is that we're able to just sit ourselves at the feet of Jesus the way that this crowd and his disciples did 2,000 years ago, and that we're able to grow deep in our understanding of what it is that he wants from us and for us. And so you've got this opportunity now that you're sheltering at home, because we're all doing the same thing, to study these verses to your, for yourself and get a really good idea of what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. See, it's necessary that we understand what we're about to read 
both that it is a place for new Christians to begin. It's an outline of here's how you can begin to live the Christian life. But also, it's a grand summary that Jesus makes of the entire teachings of Jesus and what the goal of being a Christian really is. Because when we give our life to Jesus, what we're called to do is to become a disciple of His and then to take what we know and what we've learned and to go out and to share the good news with other people and to help them become disciples as well. So... I know a lot of you asked the question, and this is a great place to start getting an answer. The, the question is, okay, now I'm a Christian, what do I do? I gave my life to Jesus, but I'm not really sure what the next step to take is. Here is the beginning of an answer. Matthew 5, starting in the first verse. Seeing the crowds, he, and that's Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Beatitudes are oftentimes taken as uh, words where we say, I don't want that, I don't want that life. And so we kind of look over them in, in case maybe we end up having to live like that. But really, Jesus wants us, wants His disciples to understand what's ahead for them. He wants us to understand what it is that's ahead for us. And when Jesus first spoke these words, you have to understand that, that literally what Jesus did was He took the world around Him, all of it, the entire world around him, and he literally turned it upside down and started to shake it out. The Roman Empire, at the hands of Caesar Augustus, the entire structure of what had become the religious world for the Jewish people, all of it, all of it, was based on a few that had power over the many. And if you're thinking that sounds a lot like our world today and increasingly like our country today, I think you're absolutely right. See, there's people in the world always have been, whether they're politicians or business people or just normal folks that are ultra-wealthy who actually believe that they know what's best for you and I better than, for, than we do ourselves. And so often, what we end up seeing when they get a little bit of power, whether they're given it or whether they take it, is corruption. Because what we find out is that power is easily corruptible. See, but Jesus isn't talking about power. Jesus is talking about His kingdom. He's talking about God's kingdom. He's talking about how important individual leaders are as they wield their power? No, that's not what he's talking about at all. Rather, he teaches us the vital importance of people like you and I who are on the bottom of that power scale. How do we live in that world? How do we react? How do we function as Christians? What do we show the world about what we believe? The Beatitudes introduce a world where the people on the bottom are to feel blessed not those who are on the top that have all the money and power. And 2,000 years later, that is completely the opposite still of what the world teaches us. The world tells us that if you've got more money and you've got more power and you've got control over people, then you're blessed. That, that isn't it at all. When we consider the Beatitudes, we need to realize 
that they were given to the disciples as a group all together at the same time. They weren't given one at a time. They were given at one time and one place. They're a mat set, much like a, a nice place setting at a dinner table. Everything has its peace and its purpose. Each one of the Beatitudes has a function and a reason, but all of them work together in the life of a disciple. So let's begin. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. There's some very important words that stick out that we need to hear there. The first one is seeing. Jesus is observant. He's aware. He knew what was going on around him. He knew what the people were. He knew what they wanted, and he knew what they thought of them. You can take comfort in that because Jesus sees you. Jesus knows where you are, and as far as you might feel from him, Jesus is still looking around him to see who's there. Jesus knows that you're there. He knows what you need. They, they followed him because it tells us in Matthew 4, the 23rd verse, it says that Jesus was already, he was known in Galilee for teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of God's kingdom, and most important to the crowds today, he was healing every disease and sickness among the people. See, that's why they were there. The people were there to see what they saw as a sideshow, almost like a circus act. Because it doesn't say that he healed a few of the people. It says he healed every disease and sickness among the people. Anybody that had anything going on in Galilee, on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, were all flocking to Jesus because he was healing every disease. They wanted the miracle show and to get from Jesus what they could. It's important to understand that so that we can read these passages in context and understand in the Beatitudes that matters. But we have to ask the question first, what is it you want from Jesus? Are you looking to take, have Jesus just take away some struggle in your life? Are you looking for Him to make something that hurts feel better? Are you looking for Him to bring justice to someone who's done you wrong? Or are you looking for Jesus what you really need? And that's the forgiveness of your sins and the Savior. This crowd that followed him, they weren't looking for a savior. They weren't looking for forgiveness of sins. They were looking to be healed. Then it says Jesus went up. See, Jesus had a plan. It, it sometimes looks like Jesus' life just happened to him, but none of it did. Jesus' life was, was very coordinated. He knew what he was doing. His time was short. And so he had this plan to separate himself a bit. The, the Bible says that oftentimes he went away to a solitary place. And, and it makes it sound like there was just maybe one place that was his favorite in Galilee. Uh, today he went to that place again, but he had a plan to do more than just have quiet time. He had a plan to spend time with his disciples. The place that Jesus would retreat to is a place called Eremos Topos. It is a, a small hillside uh, built on what the Bible calls a mountain in a lot of places, but really it's, it's a hill. Uh, it's known for a small cave that's on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee, and it overlooks the sea. It's only about 100 yards away. It's a natural setting that there's this plateau. As you look at it to the left, there's a plateau that's a flat area. And then extending for more than a hundred yards in either direction to, uh, to the right as you look at it is what amounts to a natural amphitheater. It's a way that a crowd of people could gather and hear one person speak to them without having to be, to be yelling at them. See, the understanding of this context is really important because we need to understand what was really happening in this passage. See, I, I've been thrilled to have the opportunity twice in the last two years to visit Eremos Topos. The first time a year and a half ago was with my wife, Deidre. The second time was earlier this year with a wonderful group of pilgrims, because that's what we call it when we go to the Holy Land. It's a pilgrimage. Uh, a group of pilgrims, mostly from our church, 
And yes, a lot of people have been asking. It is absolutely my intention to go back to the Holy Land in 2022. And I'd love to have you join me. So I want to give you a look of what it is that we saw when we went there. The first thing is when you're on on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and you look up on this hill, what you see is a cave in the middle of the landscape. And we're going to have a chance to see it. It should be in front of you right now. That cave is about a third of the way up. And throughout history, that's what has been used to help people understand that this is the right place. And then when you go above that cave, there's a flat spot. And what you're able to do is to take a look at that flat spot and you can look out over the entire Sea of Galilee to yourself. And what you realize is that this is where Jesus brought his disciples while the crowd gathered off to the side. And the the reason it was so incredible is it is a great place to find solitude even today. You look at this next picture and that's one of the people who was in our group of 40 people. And we spread out, and there's all of this room to just get alone and spend time with God. Jesus knew what He was doing when He went here. When He brought the disciples to this place, it was so that they could have some quiet. And as the crowds gathered, which Jesus knew always followed Him, there would be a place for them to assemble as well. This first verse tells us about the disciples, his his small group of twelve. It it says in the Gospels that Peter makes the statement that, Jesus, we are the ones who have left everything to follow you. They understood the price that they were paying to be disciples of Jesus. They're the truly committed, at least they think they are. And they're an awful good example for us as we try to understand what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. We can watch these guys and their few successes and their horrendous failures and and their complete mistakes and the way that they didn't even begin to understand. We can take some comfort in that. But you know, what they understood was that they had left their whole life behind to follow Jesus. And I think the problem that we have today being disciples of Jesus is we don't want to leave our old life behind. What we want is for Jesus to change our life, to make our life better, to make it easier, to to forgive us of the sins that we know that we've accumulated because we want to get past the guilt. But we're not ready to leave everything behind. But these disciples make it clear. They are the ones that have left everything to follow Jesus. Then we run into this word that gets so easily confused. The word is blessed. You know, it's one that we don't even think about much. We talk about it all the time. We use it in our our language and our culture in the Old Testament. To be blessed in the Old Testament, really more than anything, it didn't mean that you had, had finances or lots of animals or lots of land. What it meant was that you had children, family, people around you. In the Old Testament, blessing more than anything was understood as people who were the blessing. And we have largely lost sight of that in our world today. In our culture, we've got a completely different and and I would dare say totally wrong notion of what blessed means. We've grown up over the last 20 or so years with this thing called prosperity theology. There are pastors and people hiding in plain sight all over the place. And what they try to do is they try to make the biblical connection, and it is weak to say the least, that the amount of wealth that you enjoy is the blessing from God to you for the greatness of your faith. You're blessed with stuff because of your faith. No way. You can't take the Bible as a whole and draw that conclusion. It just isn't possible. The verses aren't there. What I like to say, if that's true, if prosperity theology is right, there are still people in the world today that are spending the disciples' money. Those men had to be blessed. And you look at their lives, from our perspective, it looked like it was anything else. See, to truly understand blessed... You cannot understand it as having stuff. 
Stuff doesn't make us blessed. That's just isn't the way that Jesus understood blessing at all. You see, it works out great if you're rich, but for the rest of us, it, it rings pretty empty. What blessed does mean in the context that Jesus is speaking to his disciples is to experience spiritual joy and satisfaction that lasts no matter the circumstances. That what you have in your heart, your relationship with Jesus, the joy that you have over the situation that you're in, no matter what it is, because the Bible tells us to give thanks in all things, as difficult as that is, to be blessed is this joy that is abiding and never goes away. Blessing comes from a relationship with Him, from knowing that we're not alone. Going back to that very first word, seeing. Jesus knows where you are. You are not alone. We're taught that we're blessed when we have more than other people do. That's just a very common understanding. You know, we say that, well, we're blessed to have a nice home. Someone compliments you or your new car or truck. You say, oh, well, I'm really blessed to have it. Uh, others might think it's vacations or clothing. That, that isn't blessing. Biblically speaking, that isn't favor. It's stuff that we paid more for, period. We had the means to buy it, and so we did. That's what it is. That idea of blessing, folks, robs us of real blessing. And it blinds us to what God really desires for us. Stuff is a cheap imitation for godly blessing. And so much of the church in America and the world today, we have confused those because for a small audience, it feels good to hear that. But stuff is just a cheap imitation for the real blessings of God. Blessing is joy in Jesus. Blessing is knowing that we're not alone. Blessing is knowing that we don't have to figure out how to live this way this life in a way that honors Jesus, Jesus tells us how it is that we can live our life in a way that honors Him and His Father and our Father in Heaven. So to truly understand the full meaning of the Beatitudes, not only do we have to understand what Jesus meant, but we also have to get a grip on what He did not mean, what the opposite of them are. And that's how they're paired, what the world lifts up and celebrates. And so verse five, or chapter 5, verse 2 so Jesus opened up his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, that one's been confused for a long time, just like all of these has. The poor in spirit is to recognize, to acknowledge, to embrace, that we understand that we are absolutely helpless before God our Creator. That the only thing that we bring to Him is our sinfulness and our need for Him. It is to accept not our greatness or superiority over others, but our lack of superiority over others. To be poor in spirit is very different than what our world would tell us. It means that to be outside of God and His provision for us, we are absolutely and completely bankrupt of hope. To understand that is to be poor in spirit. There's no worldly prosperity in being poor in spirit. There's only humility. In fact, to be poor in spirit is the opposite of the pridefulness and the false faith that goes with prosperity theology. To be pro poor in spirit means that we understand the only thing that we have in this life is the love of God and the gift of Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. For Jesus to mourn is more than just to cry. But you remember Jesus' shortest verse in the Bible. I can help you memorize the Bible verse real quick here. You ready for this? Jesus wept. That's all it is. Jesus wept. He mourned. 
And the reason that Jesus was in mourning was because a dear friend of his had died. And so, yes, he understands mourning as, as losing someone who's close to you, but it's more than that in this context. It gets to having a heart that has been absolutely broken. Not the way that we throw that word around these days. Not, not a man-made broken. Not a, hey, I felt good, I, I got over it, it was bad, but I'm okay now. Not that kind of broken. Not the self-focused broken we hear about in churches and so many songs today. That's not it. This is the kind of broken Jesus is talking about that comes from desperation. From being utterly helpless. From being outside of Him in inconsolable grief and in suffering that we cannot have alleviated outside of Him. It is more than the loss of a loved one, but the loss of a loved one helps us to begin to understand it. It's the kind of grief we might experience, experience when we truly comprehend, when we truly comprehend what Jesus went, for, went through for us on Good Friday and as He went to the cross. Mourning is understanding that it was your sin and my sin that put Him there. To mourn is to realize that Jesus died because of you and because of me. It is our sin that put Him there. It's mourning that comes from the full weight of our sin. What it did to Jesus and what our sin has inflicted on others. It's the mourning that comes from seeing the tragedy and the trauma and the pain in the life of other people and realizing we have a part in that. It's mourning over people who refuse to accept and believe in Jesus. Knowing that the gift is for them as well and they refuse to acknowledge and accept it. We know that because Jesus is giving the Beatitudes to the disciples on that flat spot of the hill that you saw me standing on while the crowd was gathering a hundred yards away in this natural amphitheater. And Jesus is no doubt looking at that crowd as He's talking to His disciples. See, the crowd was there because they thought they were going to see the miracle worker. It says in Matthew 4, of course, that He'd already begun to do miracles. He'd healed all their sick. They were there because of what they wanted, not because of what they needed. And Jesus told him that, told the disciples, He said, you know, you're blessed when you mourn. When you mourn at the destitute and spiritually bankrupt crowd that follows us. When you understand the real state of human hearts that live outside of a relationship with me, Jesus says, that's when you really are beginning to mourn. And when you do that, not because you feel sorry for yourself, then you're blessed. See, it's a very throng, it's the very crowd, it's the very same group of people that the disciples had come out of, and now they're called to love them and serve them. It's why Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem at the end of His life, because He's looking down at the city that He came to save the people of, and they wouldn't have any part of it. They didn't want Him. And Jesus mourned, because He understood what was at stake. Verse 5, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. To be meek is not to be weak. And we take it that way. That's what we think that it means. It means to be weak. No, it doesn't. It's to be tender, it's to be strong, it's to be humble, and to be teachable. Men and women of great strength and character can be meek. It doesn't mean that you have to be weak. The opposite would be to be filled with ego and pride and arrogance. The kind of things that our world looks to in our leaders. A meek person to Jesus is the one who is strong not in themselves, but in Him. A meek person is strong in Christ, able to control themselves and be disciplined. And he's telling the disciples, you're going to need to be meek. 
to have hearts of forgiveness and not a spirit of revenge or pettiness because people aren't going to treat you well. To be meek is to trust that God will take care of whatever anyone might do against us in His way and in His timing. To be meek is not to have a heart that seeks revenge. To be meek is to have a heart that's strong enough to allow God to take care of whatever God needs to do. Have you figured out yet who Jesus is describing here? He's giving a perfect description, an absolutely perfect biblical biblical description of who Jesus shows himself to be. He's telling the disciples to watch and observe and listen and learn how to be like him. But rather than just saying, watch and follow me, he's saying, here's what it looks like, here's what it sounds like, here's the words that you can use. And his words are here for us so that we can do the very same thing, so that we can be like him. So that we also can grow as disciples and not have to run around trying to figure out what in the world am I supposed to do? What we're supposed to do is to read and understand and accept and put into practice these words. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus wants his followers to have a spirit that is hungry, that is starving for more of him and for more of his version of righteousness. Not what the world says is fair. But His righteousness. We're taught to be hungry for the things of this world by everything around us. That's what advertising does, is it makes us hungry and to have an appetite for things that we don't yet have that we're supposed to lust for. We're supposed to develop an appetite for more and for better. And what Jesus says is, blessed are you when you have an appetite for more of Me. When you can't get enough of Me and of My Father's kingdom, then you're blessed. So where are you in all of this? See, we're called to be the disciples of Jesus of today. He is speaking to us in these words. To you and to me, to our church. We're called to be the disciples who have a clear understanding of what really matters to Jesus, what really matters in the kingdom of heaven. And also what it is that Jesus can expect from the crowd that follows Jesus and the culture that we live in. These things aren't going to be reflected there. You hear me say all the time that the Open Door Christian Church exists to be a part of helping God to change the culture of our, in our, culture of our communities and in our world. Not to reflect who we are, but to reflect who we follow, to reflect Jesus. Peter said it so well, Jesus, we're the ones who have left everything to follow you. For the twelve disciples... It was a radical change in their lives. It was a total transformation. Last Sunday, we showed and asked you to send us your stories of transformation, a two-picture testimony of how you've been changed by Jesus. I'm going to keep asking you to do that. Uh, If there's a way that we have online that you can get your two pictures to us, please do it. Why? Because we are given a testimony by God when we choose to stop listening to the voice and the lies of the devil and the advertising campaigns of this world, and we begin to listen to and follow and trust the voice of Jesus. Transformation begins. Your testimony begins when you start listening to God's voice, not the voice of the world. Our testimony, your testimony isn't your story. It's not your brag story. That's a resume. Your testimony is your story of God at work within you. See, when Jesus first gave His disciples the Beatitudes... The world around them laughed. They laughed at Him. 
They mocked him. They laughed at him for his lack of power that, that he claimed to be a king that did nothing to show that he was a king. Just like the world laughs and mocks and makes fun of Christians today who aren't worried about what the world around them thinks, but rather who have renounced that world and are willing to look absolutely powerless, but who know that their lives and the only real power that matters as long as their church, as well as their church, are in the hands of the opinion of the only one who really matters anyway. That's why we talk about worshiping for an audience of one. See, the Beatitudes, they set the stage for who we are to be in Jesus. So who are you? We're halfway through the Beatitudes, and then we're going into the Sermon on the Mount. And if you do anything this week, ask who you are. Go through those words. Read those verses again. Who are you? And maybe what's most important, who are you becoming? Can you identify the you that you were? Can you identify the change that happened when you accepted Jesus as your Savior and you now realize that you're becoming someone new? He created a new person in you. Who are you willing to become in Jesus? Are you willing to leave everything behind to follow Him? And if your answer is no, then what more do you want from Him? What more can Jesus do? What more can He give you? This world tells us that we're blessed because we have stuff. Jesus says that we're blessed because we have Him. Which one of those are you living your life for? Let's pray. God, thank You for the teaching of Jesus that we now call the Beatitudes, those words given directly to His disciples. And in the background was the crowd, the crowd of people who didn't understand Him, who didn't know Him, who didn't believe in Him, and who was going to make life for He and His disciples so different and difficult. And what He is doing, Jesus is telling His disciples like He's telling us. What to prepare for. <coughs> what to expect in a world that doesn't respect and honor and love You. What it is that we can expect from them and how it is that we can expect to be treated, but also, God, you're helping us understand who it is that we should be. God, my, my prayer would be that we would be faithful followers of Jesus. That we would be followers of Jesus who leave the world's crowd behind. Leave all that that means. We leave it all behind to follow Jesus. That we, we give everything we have to You, to Your kingdom, to Your Son who died for our sins and rose from the grave that our sins could be forgiven. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Hey, I want to thank you. Uh, you continue to ask, and, and we get through uh, email and, and uh, on the phone at the office. You continue to ask what you can do and how it is that you can help continue to give as we're going through this social distancing. I don't have to tell you that these are tough days. I don't have to tell you that uh, when we don't get together on Sunday morning, things change a little bit. But you know what? You're aware of it. You, you continue to reach out and you continue to, to be generous. And we want to say thank you for that. I, I really do. I want to thank you for your generosity. I want to thank you for your continued faithfulness. Uh, because of that, we're able to continue to reach out into our communities. We're able to reach out into the country. And with technology, we're able to reach out even greater in ways to the rest of the world. And so thank you for continuing to be faithful to us and to the work that God is doing here. 
Hey, tonight uh, from 6 to 7, there's going to be a welcome home class if you would like to become a member. And this is cool. We've never did and done an online membership class before, but it's what schools are doing. It's what colleges and universities are doing. So we're going to do an online welcome home class from 6 to 7 tonight. Uh, shoot us an email or let us know if you want to be a part of it. And we'll give the information for how it is that you can join in on that. Remember, from 1230 to 2 today, we would love it if you live anywhere within the driving distance of our campus here at uh, Open Door to Decision Hills. We'd love you to come out here. We'd love to see your faces. We'd love to wave from an appropriately safe distance, of course. Uh, we're going to have you drive in. There's going to be orange pylons, and those are going to be places where the prayer team is going to be there. They'd love the opportunity to pray with you and pray for you at a safe distance. And then as you drive out, we're going to have individually packaged communion. And, and uh, so it is going to be safe. It is going to be sterile. It is going to be all the things we have to do. And uh, we just want to be able to have you come and be able to see this place, come and see our home again. Uh, I know I've heard from so many of you how much you miss it. And so this is a chance to come through and to, to just be here. But we'd ask you to stay in your cars. Please respect uh, everyone else here who is going to be with us. But uh, thank you. Do that. We're looking forward to it. I, I think that's going to be an awesome, awesome thing. Here's what I'm going to leave you with. As Christians, you do not live your life to please the crowd. And the world tells us that if we don't please the crowd, that they're going to make fun of us, they're going to mock us, they're going to bully us and push us around. You live your life to please an audience of one. And what we're going to look at in the weeks going forward is how Jesus tells us exactly how we can do that. Thank you for tuning in, folks. Thank you from wherever you are. Thank you for worshiping with us. Uh, thank you for being willing to get to know Jesus a little bit better. Have a great week. Uh, if you get the chance to come out and see us this afternoon, we'd love to be able to see you. If not, I hope you tune in. We'll look forward to seeing you next Sunday. Have a great week, folks.